Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amy Brown, one of your co-hosts of this channel. And uh, today we'll be talking to Professor Carolina Alonso Bejarano about her new book, Decolonizing Ethnography, Undocumented Immigrants and New Directions in Social Science. And that is actually by, uh, there are actually four co-authors of Professor Bejarano, Lucia Lopez Suarez and Miriam A. Mijangos Garcia, who are uh, organizers and activists, and uh, also Professor Daniel Goldstein. And this book uh, is uh, brought to us by Duke University Press, and it, was, it has been published this year. Uh, welcome, Professor Alonso Bejarano. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, just where you know where you're from. Um, you know how you. And, and, you know, just how you started getting involved in anthropology and ethnography and um, how this project, and then we, then we can get into how this project came to be. Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, again, my name is Carolina Alonso Ejarano. I was born in Bogota and uh, I went to school in Bogota. I first I got a BA in political science and then I went to law school. Uh, and my interest in academia uh, started as an interest in the law, in particular how the law can serve as a means for social transformation, but also as a means for oppression of certain people. So that's where my academic interest started. Um, and after I finished law school, I decided to uh, get a master's degree at the London School of Economics in uh, gender and social policy. So I was interested in policy. And when I went to Europe to get my, my master's, I started getting interested in these processes of illegalization of immigrants. As a, you know, as a legal immigrant with a visa, I realized the privilege that I had, and I realized that there were other people who didn't have a visa, who didn't have any papers, right? Who were uh, what in France is called the sans papier with no papers, um, and it is through my experience in Europe that I got interested in this um, phenomenon of illegalization of immigrants. So then, when I came to Rutgers uh, in 2010 to get my PhD in women's and gender studies, I already knew that I wanted to understand how this process of illegalization, like the social historical processes that result in the categorization of certain immigrants as illegal. So uh, that's uh, as you know my introduction of myself. But I would also like to introduce a little bit and invoke the spirits of my other co-authors and tell you a little bit about them. So um, first, Lucia Lopez Juarez. She was born in Santo Tomas Mazaltepec which is a farming village in Oaxaca, in southern Mexico. 
and she um, has been in the United States for 20 years. Lucy is a mother, and as you said, she's an activist uh, for immigrants' rights, and uh, she also works as a domestic worker. Uh, my other co-author, Miriam uh, Mijangos Garcia, she was born in Santa Maria Ixhuatan in Guatemala, and she has been in the United States for 10 years. She is also an activist uh, for immigrants' rights, and she is a um, um, singer and songwriter. And she also is a person that works with natural plants uh, for healing purposes. Uh, and then we have Daniel Goldstein, who's Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at Rutgers University. And uh, he's originally from New, New York. Um, and his research, he's an anthropologist, and his research for many years was focused on Bolivia. And it was about insecurity and security in Bolivia. So he worked there for many years, and then he became interested in these same issues of security and illegalization in the United States, and he became interested in specifically undocumented people in the state of New Jersey, where he uh, was doing his teaching. So that's kind of where we all met, uh, in the great state of New Jersey. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, very diverse backgrounds. How did you all come to work on the project that is at the basis of this book? Uh, well, the, the whole thing started... Um, in 2011, in the summer of 2011, I was in my second year of doctoral studies at Rutgers, and um, I was working as a research assistant for Professor Robin Rodriguez. And Robin was doing this uh, project with Daniel on what has been termed the securitization of migration, which uh, means how immigration has become a homeland security issue, right? And specifically, they were thinking about this phenomenon, which is called by migration studies, the interiorization of the border. And it is this phenomenon where through local laws, through ordinances like land use ordinances, housing ordinances, different municipalities and states try to stop the settlement of undocumented immigrants using these local laws. So Daniel and Robin uh, were designing a project on how to look at this in, as I was saying, the state of New Jersey, and in particular, a little town that we in our book call Hometown. So I started as a research assistant for that project. Then Robin um, had to go because she got a job at UC Davis. So then it was just me and Daniel. And we worked together in Casa Hometown, which is an immigrant rights organization located in Hometown that offers various services to undocumented people and Latinx people in central New Jersey. Daniel and I worked uh, there in Casa Hometown for two years as volunteers, getting to know people and so on. And then after two years, we um, applied for a grant with the National Science Foundation that would allow us to uh, hire two more people from the community to work with us as research assistants. So we got this funding uh, to work for, th for two years 
in hometown. And we decided to uh, hire Miriam and Lucy, who we had already known because we had already worked with them as volunteers of Casa Hometown. And we thought that they were quite perfect for this project. So uh, that's how we all came together. We asked Daniel and I, as Lucy and Miriam, if they wanted to join our project and they accepted. And that's how this really got started. It was when Lucian Median came on board. Okay. Um, and uh, the results are documented very uh, clearly and compellingly in the book. Uh, I, I believe it's in the introduction to the book where Faye Harrison's contri contribution to the notion of decolon decolonizing anthropology comes up mm -hmm. and um, and she poses a question which which is quoted in your book mm -hmm. can an authentic anthropology emerge um, from the crit critical intellectual traditions and counter hegemonic uh, counter I'm sorry uh, struggles of third world peoples and you know following on from that how you know has an anthropological how can an anthropological knowledge advance the interests of the world's majority during this period of an ongoing crisis and uncertainty, and uh, I, to for me as I read this book, the, I, I think the book answers those questions in in very specific and very clear ways. Mm -hmm. And um, I just I, I'm wondering if you can um, speak to that a little bit. Yes. So we start with Harrison. Uh, in the 1990s, but clearly she's not the first person to be talking about the colonial character of ethnography, right? And in our book, we follow this history and we argue that anthropology as a discipline and ethnography as a method of knowledge production of that discipline emerged during the colonial era, and it was a way to know the colonized other, right? So we say in our book that anthropology as a discipline is a colonial discipline and ethnography as a method is a colonial method. And um, Harrison talks about, she's part of what has been termed the, de de the decolonial generation, decolonizing generation in anthropology. But really, and in our book we talk about this, there were several people before her that talked about the fact that anthropology has this colonial character and um, there's plenty of people before us who have asked how can we decolonize ethnography, how can we decolonize anthropology and uh, what we say in our book, well there's many ways in which we can uh, decolonize ethnography that we propose in the book but one of the main ones is that we uh, challenge this distinction between the person who is doing the studying and the object of that study. So the people who have been known in anthropology as the other, what we argue in our book is we can decolonize ethnography by giving ethnographic tools to these others and by allowing them to use these ethnographic tools as a means for decolonization, right? In the way that they want, not in the way that we want. And also we propose that we, in ethnography many times, you know, there's the ethnographer that goes somewhere 
to collect her data, right? And then she comes home and then she processes this data through theories that many times uh, come from Europe and are Eurocentric, right? So we propose that we look for thinkers beyond the European canon, right? As, as a tool also for understanding the, the world. Um, and we also argue that ethnography can be a pedagogical tool, actually, for people to learn about their rights, to empower themselves. And uh, that's what we propose in our book, um, mainly, in terms of decolonization. Um, for those of us, and I'm one of these people who are new, relatively new to anthropology and to ethnography, when you speak of ethnographic tools, what, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, ethnography has been the method used by anthropology to collect data. And there's various ways in which you do ethnography and collect data. The most, two most important ones are called you know, the most, the most used ones, I don't want to say the most important ones, but the ones that people know and people will be familiar with are doing interviews, right? Talking to people and extracting data from what they tell you. And the other one is doing participant observation, which is going to a place and being, you know, an active member of that space and learning through that experience and collecting data through that experience of talking directly with people and actually immersing yourself as much as you can in the world that you want to know about. Um, can you talk, a, I think you've already described a little bit the, the nature of the project that is the, is the focus of this book. Um, was that project, did that, did um, you and Daniel set out to make this a specifically decolonizing project? Well, I think, I think it's different for the four of us, how we came with to think about this project as a decolonial one. Uh, in my, my particular case, um, as soon as I came to Rutgers, I started taking classes um, that were talking about decolonization, in particular with Nelson Maldonado Torres, Yolanda Martinez San Miguel, Carlos de Sena. These are all professors at Rutgers that are thinking about decolonization. And I was reading about it. I was reading about what has been turned, uh, termed the decolonial turn, which is um, this... Um, Theories, these theories that come uh, from, you know, the global south and mainly from Latin America that are questioning uh, social science and like Western epistemologies, Western uh, ways of knowing and are saying, let's look beyond that. Like, what can we find beyond the epistemology and the ontology of the West, right? So I was thinking in these terms when I started doing this process um, in hometown and uh, Daniel had been engaged for many years in um, 
what has been termed activist anthropology, right? So it's using, as I was saying, the methods of anthropology to advance uh, causes for social justice. So Daniel was already thinking in these terms when we started the, the project, and it wasn't necessarily framed as decolonial yet, but it was definitely oriented in that way. Um, so that's how the project started. It started as when we first hired uh, Lucian Median, we wanted to learn about how undocumented immigrants access the law. Because, and this is something that not a lot of people know, undocumented immigrants do have rights in this country. And in particular, they have rights as workers because people have workers' rights independently of their immigration status. So we wanted to learn how people use the law, undocumented people in particular, use the law to advance their interests, because many times immigration scholarship portrays undocumented people as victims, powerless victims of the system that can't do anything about it. And we wanted to know how people can use the law, right? How people actually use the law. And we picked three different cases. Um, uh, immigration procedures, how, how people fight deportation, work accidents, when people have accidents at work, and wage theft, when people are not paid for their work. And uh, undocumented people have many work accidents. Me and Daniel uh, wrote an article about this in 2017 called E-Terrify. And uh, many people who are undocumented, when they have an accident, what happens is their employer then says like, oh, you don't have papers, what are you gonna do? You know, just like, fend for yourself, you're fired. Or people do their work and at the end of the day, the employer says, uh, you have no papers, what are you gonna do? I'm not gonna pay for your work, right? So people, when that happens, people have the actual right to take their employers to court. And this is something that we talk about in our book, Median, my co-author, she had a bad accident um, in a horse farm in New Jersey um, and she then filed a lawsuit against her employer who didn't want to pay for her recovery and she won her lawsuit. So we wanted to explore when people use the law. And um, that's how the whole thing started. But then in working with Lucy and Median, they had their own ideas of where they wanted to take the project. And from the beginning, me and Daniel had decided that we were going to work as equals, you know, between the two of us, but also with whoever we hired. So when Lucian Median, for example, became very interested in knowing about domestic violence, that was something that they brought to the project, their interest in domestic violence. They were also interested in how women organize or cannot organize because of their family. So they brought that interest. So this whole project started as Daniel trying to write an academic book about workers' rights and me trying to write my dissertation so I could finish my PhD and graduate. And in the end, it turned into a book about the ethnographic process itself and how through our four years of working 
doing ethnography in New Jersey in this little town and how through the involvement of Lucy and Midian in particular, the exercise of ethnography extended beyond what we all thought it could be and became an exercise in decolonization. That's that's wonderful. It's it's so in other words, you you didn't specifically say, well, to try to decolonize this, we're going to go out and hire immigrant workers mm-hmm. to do our ethnography that they just they happen to be present. You hired them and then they very much brought their own experiences and their own judgment. Yes, we already when we when we wrote and we have this in our book, we have an excerpt of the National Science Foundation grant that we wrote. And it says that we thought that to really learn about undocumented lives, you had to do it through hiring uh, people who are immigrants from that community, right? Who will give us a different vantage point on the whole issue. So we already were thinking as an activist ethnography, we wanted to hire people from the community, right? But we weren't thinking to decolonize ethnography, we need to work with these people, uh, at least not in those words. Okay. You've already described what I'm, uh, what I'm about to ask you in so many words, but I think I'm just going to ask you to say it another way. If you were looking at an ethnographic project, you know, if you were looking at how it was conducted and the outcome of it, how you know are there way are there aspects of it that you would say definitely you know, decolonizing practices were applied here or well if we were seeking to do decolonizing practices you could have done a little better here like what what do, what would you say are the hallmarks of in an ethnographic project that practices decolonization um well In this case, our book is looking to be descriptive rather than prescriptive. So I am sure that there's other ways to do decolonizing work other than what we do in our book. But what I would look for is, first and foremost, the recognition that ethnography has been a colonial tool since, you know, its invention. Right. So starting by that recognition and the recognition of the particular positionality of the person who's doing the ethnography. So saying like, this is who I am. This is where I come from. These are my racial privileges. Right. For example, or my gender privileges that I bring to the project. So recognizing where you're speaking from, I think I would considered to be key and definitely not learning about the other but learning with the people that you are trying to learn about right so it's a project where there is not an object of study that is different from the subject who is doing the studying, but where there is like the main relation is one of solidarity and mutual recognition of the humanity of the other. Um, I, I'm going to ask, uh, you know, I'm going to ask a few more questions about, you know, that go directly to 
the involvement of Lucia and Miriam here. Um, one thing I thought that was um, interesting to me was during one of the, I think one of the initial chapters, the question of the relationship of the grad student and the professor, um, that can take on a colonialist or decolonizing nature. And I, can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. Um, graduate students more and more in the neoliberal university are workers that are exploited for their work. So graduate students, for example, I'm going to talk about my particular case. Um, I had to teach from very early on because my department was very underfunded. So I had, they, they had grad students teaching, you know, the intro classes, for example, their own classes, right? Teaching, I at one point was teaching more than 100 students per year, right? While trying to do my research. And this is a way in which the university saves money in professors, right? The other way is to hire them as adjunct professors, uh, which is happening too to graduate students all the time across the United States, where graduate students are not hired as employees of the university, but rather as private contractors who um, are giving a contract that their contract is to give one class. So they're paid at Rutgers, you're paid $5,000 per class that you teach, no health benefits, right? So many grad students get trapped in that and they, you know, to make ends meet, you have to teach maybe four classes per semester, right? While trying to do your research. So the more you work, the less you do your research, the more you work, etc. Um, in terms of the relation between graduate students, graduate students and professors, there is uh, oftentimes a clear hierarchy between the professor and the student. And uh, Daniel and I, when we started working together, we talked about that in, in our book, uh, we had a clear hierarchy where he was my boss and I was his employee. And that, uh, for us, for us, we even uh, have in our book uh, an email exchange that we have that really was a defining moment in our relationship because I said, like, basically, I'm not going to tolerate this strict hierarchy between you and me. And then as the years went by, we started to collaborate as really equal partners. Daniel has taught me so much and I uh, have taught him so much too, I am sure. And then of course, Lucy and Miriam came and then we all learned from each other and we all socialized with each other, got to know each other's families. So really we developed this sense of solidarity and, you know, friendship. That's, that's great. When Lucia and Miriam came on board, um, you know, the, there's several comments in the book as to their, they were excellent ethnographers. Um, how did they, they and it, it, there's a reference to um, basically the, the theory that arises or the theory that people who in colonial anthropology would be the subjects of study when they are involved in the research process, um, they actually wind up formulating their own theories. And can you talk a little bit about how Lucia and Miriam um, 
you know, very much contributed their own theory as well as their own labor to the to this project. Yes. So, so the our chapter is our chapter. Our book is divided in five chapters. In the first chapter, we talk about anthropology, colonial anthropology, alternatives to colonial anthropology, and basically what we mean by decolonizing. Then in our second chapter, we talk about the histories of each one of us and how we came to work together in this little town that we call hometown. Then in the third chapter, we talk about hometown, a little bit immigration in the United States, and also these three things that I was talking about, domestic violence, work accidents, and wage theft as the things that we were originally studying. And then our fourth chapter um, is where we really dive into Lucian Median's contribution to the book. And we draw from their very rich field notes and from our very rich conversations with them. Uh, and we describe uh, what we in our book call a undocumented activist theory of undocumentation. And that is a theory that was put forward specifically by Lucian Median. And that theory says, yes, the system may be rigged against us, but we have to step out of the shadows, as they put it, and fight for our humanity and for our rights. So it is different than other approaches to undocumentation and illegalization that are really structural. And as I was saying before, see the undocumented immigrant as a victim that is powerless because uh, she is working within this machine that wants her labor on the one hand, right? but also wants it to be very cheap. And uh, to for that to happen, she needs to be deportable all the time, right? So it's the menace of deportation that keeps people in line. That's basically what other migration scholars have said. And what Lucian Median say is, yes, this is true, but it is also true that it is up to us to really step out, you know, speak truth to power and look for ways in which we can collectively demand our rights. And in this, they draw a lot from the history of the civil rights and black power movements in the United States, right? So for example, Median, in a conversation that we had that we describe in the book, she tells me like, look at black people. I have heard that it was the case that black people could not sit at, at the front of the bus. And one day they said, enough is enough, right? And look at them now, they can sit in the front of the bus. So she says, it's the same for us undocumented people. We need to say enough is enough and the time is now. That's her theory. And that's what we say in our book. And that's something that Daniel and I cannot be saying, but Lucian Median Right? As organizers, as part of the community, as people who have a deeper understanding, as people who, you know, have been disabled by an accident, or Lucy, for example, her partner was in danger of being deported because he was 
arrested. Uh, we talk about this in our book. So, you know, they can put forward this theory, right? This is their theory. And it is a decolonizing move for us to say, this is a theory that we need to consider as scholars. There, as you were speaking about Lucy and Miriam's contributions um, as active researchers and as people who knew the field very well, I was reminded there's there's a portion in the book that talks about Daniel's experiences in I think it was Bolivia, and there were three there were three pro- there were three projects that are discussed, and the first one. So, you know, in, in his view, suffered from certain aspects. The second one, I think it, it was, it, there were some NGOs involved. Can, can you talk about that a little bit and how that was not how he wanted it to be? Well, I, uh, I know what I know about that is what he says in the book. He and I have never really discussed that extensively, but what he says in our book is that he, because when he was working in Bolivia, he felt that in issues around security, he felt that people were expecting him to help in some way, to provide services. So um, he felt that it was um, a good thing to create an NGO to actually do this, right, where he was working, to provide services to people. So he raised funds and created an NGO, but then once that happened, there was increasing hierarchization and internal fights because now money was involved too, right? So he felt more and more that he was administering the money and trying to, you know, be the mediator between different people as opposed to you know actually doing activist research so he ended up abandoning the NGO and uh, so for our project what was different was that uh, in Casa Hometown even though they were not an NGO when we first came to work with them they you know within in the years that we worked with them they did turn into an NGO but that NGO was different from our project was a separate entity from our project so it didn't really the effects were not the same as they had been in the case of Daniel and his project in Bolivia there are um, one one thing that is uh, that you also mentioned and you know your own background lends to this is the role of cross-disciplinary work in decolonization practice. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. Well, in my own work, in my own dissertation work, and in my articles, my academic articles that I write, I use a variety of methods from different disciplines. So, for example, as part of our project, I researched the colonial history of hometown from 1609, when the Dutch first came to what is today New Jersey, to 1702, when New Jersey was created um, by the British crown. And uh, it is my belief that by understanding this early colonial history of New Jersey, and how since 
even then, the law and local legislation was being used to keep non-white people from having access to space. And in particularly, I'm talking about Native Americans and African Americans. In understanding how the law has been used to exclude non-white people from the use of space, since the colonial era, we can better understand what is happening in hometowns right now, where local legislation like anti-loitering laws are being used to stop Latinx people from settling in town. So one thing that happened in hometown, which makes it a very interesting case, and we talk about this in our book, is the fact that in 2003, the municipality passed this anti-loitering law that prohibited day laborers from waiting, uh, congregating and waiting for work by the rail tracks where they had traditionally, you know, waited for work. So this law made it illegal and they said anyone who's waiting for work there will be arrested. And what happened in hometown was that this African-American church said, we're not going to let them do this to the Latinx immigrants because back when we were migrating to during the Great Migration and during the civil rights era, the municipality was using the exact same anti-loitering laws because we were standing in the exact same place as day laborers looking for work. So what this African-American church did was they offered their space for uh, day laborers, mostly Latinx immigrants, to stand in their church and wait for work. And at the same time, a coalition uh, of Latinx people, black people, white people, and two immigrants' rights organizations filed a lawsuit against the municipality saying that the anti-loitering law was discriminating against undocumented people. So what happened was they won their lawsuit. And after they won their lawsuit, they created Casa Hometown, the organization that I volunteered with. So what I say is that if we are going to understand what is happening today, you know, how they are using the law against their laborers today, we need to see how they have been using the law since the colonial era, right? And that to me is also a decolonial approach to ethnographic work that involves another method, which is archival research, which not to say that anthropologists don't do archival research, but they mostly don't go as far back as 400 years back, right? So you would think a historian would do that. But I think it is very important for me as an anthropologist now to understand this colonial history of the town. So that's an example on on how interdisciplinarity and mixed methods uh, are for me the way to go um, for decolonizing the economy. Speaking of cross-disciplinary approaches, um, there is a play in the book. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Can can you tell me how that came about and... um, what the what uh, you, the authors are seeking to do with the play? Oh, there's so much about this play. Um, <laughs> yes, it's I think my favorite chapter of the book because it is the chapter that we like wrote together at the same time. 
the rest of the book was written differently. Either Daniel wrote it or I wrote it, and we used Lucy and Miriam's field notes, and then we talked to them about what we were writing, you know? But the play, we all wrote at the same time, and the history behind it is, as I was telling you, I already uh, was wanting my work to be decolonial when we got this NSF grant. And... Um, a couple of things happened. One was that I was taking this class with a professor called Nelson Maldonado Torres, and he assigned a book called Lionheart Gal, which was a book by a collective of women in Jamaica who did theater together. So that to me was very inspiring. The knowledge that they produced through their uh, plays, and you know, it's a collection of testimonies uh, it was very powerful and it was very inspiring for me. And at the same time, my professor, through which I met Daniel, Rowan Rodriguez, had a student of hers who was also doing her PhD. And as part of her PhD, she was working with Filipina domestic workers. And as part of her PhD, she participated in a play that was produced in New York City by Filipino domestic workers about their situation in the United States. So I went to see that play and I was like, I want that you know, for my dissertation. I think this is just such a decolonial move, I thought. So uh, when Daniel and I uh, were thinking about our project, I told him I want to I wanna do a play and he said, uh, let's do a play, that's okay. And then uh, when we first talked to Lucy and Median about our project and we asked them what they wanted out of the project and we told them what we wanted, Median coincidentally said, I want to do a play because my, my day laborer friend uh, told me that he can play the guitar and I can sing my, my songs because I, I told you Median is a songwriter. So uh, she wanted to do a play as well. So that's how the idea started. And then we learned about uh, Farm Workers Theater, uh, which is con consists of short skits of, you know, like short scenes. And we decided that we would follow that. And also the Lionheart, Hulk, uh, Lionheart Gal book that I talked about, which uh, said that their plays went from testimony to play. So we started with Median's testimony about her work accident. And she wrote it first. And then for two years, we worked with many other people. And we wrote this play. It's a, a one-act play. And um, it deals with family separation. It, feels with, it deals with work accidents. But mainly, it deals with what uh, rights undocumented people have as workers in the United States. So our play was meant to be a pedagogical tool to inform people. It was written in Spanish, and I translated it to English for the book. And in the book, you can read it in both Spanish and English. And it is about what rights undocumented people have and how they can actually go to court and win their cases. So um, Daniel, after that, he went to a conference in Europe and uh, he wanted to talk about the book, but instead of talking about the book, what he did was um, he uh, found students to do the play 
And that was his way of presenting the book. And it's a very different way. And he said that many people got emotional because, you know, I know this because I acted in the play. And, uh, you know, it made me understand the situation a lot better by playing the role, you know, by imagining that I am there. So that's another tool that we have in the book for people to maybe understand illegalization and undocumentation in a different way, you know, from actually role-playing and experiencing it differently. There were definitely aspects, um, you know, when, uh, when Miriam's story has been, was talked about in the book. And then again, through the play that uh, there, there were certainly aspects of the immigrant experience that I did not understand very well. And I certainly understand them better after having read the book. Who now we now that the book has been published, who do you hope reads and uses the book? We had many audiences in mind. Definitely we hope people who are scholars read the book and reflect upon how they their way of knowledge production can be decolonial or colonial. Um, in particular, younger scholars who maybe haven't encountered, you know, these alternative ethnographies that we describe in our book. Uh, so we definitely wrote it for them in, in some way. But I think mostly, at least for me, I wrote it so people know that undocumented people have rights in the United States, that undocumented people have lives in the United States, that undocumented people are human beings who pay taxes in the United States. So for me, um, I hope anyone who's interested in immigration, whether they think that you know it's a good thing, whether they think that it's a bad thing, maybe reading this book, as I was saying, will make them understand the situation in a different way. And definitely, and I just sent an email to Duke yesterday asking about this, I definitely want to translate the book into Spanish for undocumented people themselves, not to say that all undocumented people speak Spanish, but in hometown where we did our research and where I want to bring our book, that is the case. So I want them to have access to this book and I want them to read it too. And, you know, to maybe share with Lucy and Miriam and Daniel and me what they thought, you know, this book is for everyone. And we, when we were writing it, especially when we were writing the introduction and the conclusion, which are the more like, theory heavy chapters we were always thinking that we didn't want this to be a full a book full of jargon where you feel lost in the middle of it and you have to go back and read it again and again uh, we wanted this to be as clear as possible and as accessible as possible for everyone but we understand that right now it's only in english and that is um a limitation but we're addressing that limitation too uh, this the project came about. You know, it, it, its genesis was in sort of the typical academic realm, um, you know, anthropo anthropological ethnographic project. And of course, it has it it has took a couple of evolutions along the way. My I wondered as I was reading if 
ethnographic tools could could be added to, you know, it's sort of separate from an anthropological project. Ethnographic tools themselves would be of use to organizers and activists. Um, well, Lucy and Median, I think we, we specifically address that in our book when we talk about Lucy and Median and their approach to ethnography, right? And how, for example, as organizers, they use their interviews to educate people about their rights. So for Median, she says, for me, an interview is a two-way street where I give you something and you give me something, right? So she was always uh, talking to people. If you listen to her interviews, she was like, oh, but you can go to court or you can go to the hospital or you need to do this. Or, for example, you need to talk to such and such person because doing the interviews for them, like they really got to know the problems of the community because we did many interviews. We did uh, like a, a hundred interviews all together throughout the four years. So they really got to talk to a lot of people. And so they would connect people to each other, say like, go to this person, go to this other person. So definitely interviewing, uh, they show is a tool uh, for organizing. And also observation, also uh, writing about what you learn can be used to then go and revise. Like Median says that she hasn't stopped writing since we did her project. She has her iPad and she takes notes there and then she goes back and then she remembers who she has to talk to, who has what problem, right? So note-taking and field notes also are tools that can be useful for organizing. And they also, um, for example, for my dissertation, I was very interested in the history of African-Americans in hometown. So that became part of our project. And Lucian Median, you know, relations, despite the story that I told you about the coalition, relations between African-Americans and Latinxes have been tense in hometown. And uh, through our project, Lucian Median got to interview several African-Americans from hometown and invite them to come to Casa Hometown and participate. And they, in fact, they came. So that too, you know, was a means for building bridges and creating solidarity. The preface of the book, uh, the, the project itself formally wrapped in 2015. And while, you know, as, as we know, um, there were certainly deportations and, you know, increased securitization at that time. Otherwise, the, this project would not have, you know, wouldn't have come to pass, you know, would not have started in the, in the way it did. Um, Obviously, the project wrapped 2015, and then there was an election in 2016, and things have taken a turn, as they say. Um, Can you talk a little bit, can you you say how this book and how the people involved, how they've been affected and how they are carrying on? Yes, we um, decided to add a preface to the book precisely because our book is a call to action, right? And we felt that the odds, not the odds, the states have changed since the election of Donald Trump because, you know, in his administration, there is a, like, state-sanctioned, hateful 
discourse around immigrants and around people from the global south and people of color in general. So we understood that we had to add a preface to the book to discuss this. And uh, for that preface, I again talked to Lucian Median and I asked them how they felt about, you know, everything that was happening. And I will tell you what they told me, which we write in the preface. Lucy told me that uh, just like in the times of Martin Luther King, you have to risk risk something to get something. And she told me the history of decolonization continues. And Median told me now is the time to organize even more because illegality is not just a problem of undocumented people. And I think that is something that we have seen um, in a more intense way is how illegality, you know, the processes through which people become seen as illegal are not only reserved to the undocumented, right? And it is important that we create solidarity across different immigration statuses, across different nationalities and ethnicities. And um, it is even more important now uh, than it was when we wrote our book. And I believe that. And uh, Miriam and Lucy are still organizing, you know, full force. They still chose to keep their names in the book, you know, despite the risk. And um, I think that we need to learn from them and know that now is the time to really organize and really, you know, stand up for those who are less privileged than us. Definitely. I think my next question is to be, would be, what is next? Uh, what, what do you have planned next yourself? And uh, if you can talk, uh, you know, if you know what's going, if Lucia, Miriam, and Daniel, what what is next for them as well? Okay, I can I can talk mostly about me, uh, but I can also uh, say a little bit about. I know a little bit about what uh, the rest of my co-authors are up to. I um, my dissertation had three different chapters. And the third chapter of it turned into, you know, parts of chapters two and four of our book. So to me, this book is my dissertation book, uh, you know, that came even if it's just a little bit out of my dissertation. And then I have two other chapters uh, that I'm turning into articles. I just sent the first one for review, which is the one that I told you talks about the early colonial history of New Jersey and how it impacts the illegalization of immigrants in the United States now. And the second one, which uh, deals with this coalition, which they at the time called the Magical Coalition, is another article that I am prepping to send for review. And at that point, I will be done with my dissertation research. And I am starting already my my second book project, which is called Artivismo Indocumentado on Docu-Artivism in the Tri-State Area. And it is about, inspired by her book, inspired by Miriam and her songs and the fact that, you know, she says that music is really the way to organize. She says it's more effective than anything else when she sings a song, right? So I am looking to see how different... Um, undocumented people use art 
as a means of activism and as a means uh, of social transformation. So I'm very interested in art these days, and that's going to be my next project. I am also working with artist Peter Quach, who, by the way, is the artist who did our cover and did the images that we have in the book because we decided not to have pictures in our book. Uh, but rather have drawings, illustrations. Peter Quach has been collaborating with us for many years, and he was the one who did the illustrations for us. And together, he and I are writing a graphic novel uh, about he's from Vietnam, his family fled after the Vietnam War to the United States, and it's about how, you know, the history... Vietnam's colonial history and how that history has influenced this family through generations, Peter's family. So we're working on that. We uh, have a trip to Vietnam, uh, a research trip where we're going to do archival research and ethnographic research, by the way, for our book in December. And we're very excited about that. So those are my projects. I know Daniel after writing academically for many years. This is his fourth book. Uh, and uh, he decided that he doesn't want to write academically anymore. So he's writing fiction uh, these days. And he retired um, as a professor. Uh, Lucy and Median. Lucy is still working. Median is working too. Uh, but they're also still organizing with Casa Hometown. They're both in the board of directors of Casa Hometown. And, you know, the fight continues, like Lucy says. Can we, is there a place, we, can we find you on social media or where can we find you online? Uh, we are not social media people. Okay. So uh, we're not findable on social media, but you can definitely find the book in the Duke uh, website, Decolonizing Ethnography. Um, I recommend it. And as do I. Um, Professor Alonso Bejarano, thank you so much for your time. And um... Thank you so much, Amy. <laughs>